Well, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, if you turn there in your Bible, or there's one there in a pew right in front of you. And uh, let's get ready to get into God's Word together. Up near uh, Dana Hills High School is the Harry Otsubo Community Garden. Uh, he died two years ago at 100 years old and a half. And um, it's a place up there, the garden in his uh, in memory and in his name, is a place people can rent a plot for about the size of one of the kids' bedrooms uh, each year. And uh, each so there's all these little plots, all these different little gardeners growing various kinds of things that they like to eat or their favorite flowers and of course some organic weeds and well one of our church members has one of those plots and they left on vacation recently and they asked me if I would tend it for them while they're gone so we've been eating the best kale and tomatoes and cucumbers you could ever want coming out of their garden they're organic pure gluten-free and free and, um, I mean, somebody else did all the work of preparing the soil and clearing the weeds and planting the seeds and tending the little shoots and watching it grow, and we get all the reward. It's a pretty cool deal. And, you know, Jesus is like that. He's pure. He's undiluted. He's all the body needs and nothing it doesn't. And he is offered to you for free. You don't do any of the work. So we're beginning this series entitled The Undiluted Jesus based on this little letter, love letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. So we're going to look there in Colossians chapter 1. We live in this world that is focused on pure food and is polluted spiritually. And Colossians was similar to that. And it offers us to drink from the undiluted, nutritionally rich, spiritual fountain that is Jesus Christ. And he has what we need. So here's the situation. Paul is an apostle. He's a missionary. He's a church planter. And he's getting on in years. And he's on his last visit to Jerusalem, he was arrested. And he used his Roman citizenship card to appeal for an audience with Caesar in Rome. So he was transported under armed guard to Rome and then kept there imprisoned. And so he's spending time there. Um, watching TV and texting. Not really. He's uh, waiting and waiting. And he's, so he spends it writing letters and praying. And at some point, another prisoner arrives in the prison. His name is Epaphras. And as the two of them talk, Paul found out that Epaphras was from Colossae and that they actually had mutual friends in Colossae. Now, you've probably played that do you know so, uh, so-and-so from Kalamazoo game too, haven't you? And at some point, Paul learns that Epaphras is actually one of the church leaders in Colossae. Well, he's never been, Paul's never been to Colossae, but he knows some of the people in the church, so he keeps asking questions. And he, it comes out from Epaphras that the church is having some struggles, that Epaphras has some concerns, because it was started by people who had come out of the world, who had asked Jesus to forgive their sin, to be their savior, to be in charge of their lives. They'd gathered together to lift up and to praise the name of Jesus, just like we've been doing here this morning. And gradually, some of the worldly philosophies and practices were beginning to creep back into the church with some of the people who had been coming there, kind of taking Jesus and then adding these other things from the world. Jesus even said, be in the world, but not of the world. But we all live in the world, and so sometimes those kind of things can find their way into the church. And their little church was in danger of losing its focus on Jesus Christ and of compromising with the world, of softening some of the edges of their beliefs so that it would be more palatable to the world. Jesus explained to, to be friends with the world is to be at, at odds with God. You cannot reconcile the two, and you have to make a choice. Am I going to be right with God and out of step with this world or the other way around? Now, you might be thinking, you know, I feel that same kind of pressure as a Christian in America in 2016. Why stand up for God's word and what it says when it will get you laughed at, ridiculed, pointed out, ostracized, and there's nothing you can do about it? 
Well, because someday you'll stand before God in heaven to give an account for your life when it really matters. Paul had it much worse. In his day, there was no freedom of speech. There was no freedom of religion. He's sitting in prison. He's not just wringing his hands saying, I can't do anything. But really, what could he do? He's a prisoner. He's helpless. He's not even in the town of Colossae. What can he do to help? Maybe you've been in situations where you have felt helpless. You wish you you could do something, but you have little or no control that you're not directly involved, but the outcome is going to really matter to you. What can you do? Paul gives us some ideas here of what you can do because he wants to help and he's not there. So he does three things, all of which we can do. He writes a letter to express compassion and concern and encouragement and to focus them on Jesus. And he points them to Jesus. And he prays. He prays. He prays for what the fully devoted followers of Jesus really need. So we're going to look at his letter. But when you look at his letter, just kind of a little aside on our prayers. When we compare our prayers with the prayers of the Apostle Paul, sometimes ours can seem pretty puny or petty by comparison. Not that we aren't praying for what's important. I mean, we are, but it almost so seems often that our prayers are for our health and our uh, jobs and our families and our uh, issues and ourselves, our concerns. It's focused on us and our well-being. So what does every Christian need to pray for? What is God's continuing commitment to his people And why should God answer Paul's prayer? Or why should God answer your prayer or mine? I want us to look at Paul's prayer to these believers and see his example to us of praying in God's spirit. Look what he says, Colossians 1 verse 9. He says, from the day that we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does every Christian need to pray for? And what is God's continuing work in his people? And why should God answer our prayers? Here's the big idea. The gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ as found in his word, the gospel guarantees God's continuous work to help us live rightly and endure joyfully. So here's what every Christian needs. Number one, God's knowledge for right living. God's knowledge for right living. He says, verse 9, from the first day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What's necessary? Knowledge of God's will. How do you know the will of God? How do you make a decision? I mean, is it all up to you? We make hundreds of decisions every day, some of them very small, some of them very significant. Well, I mean, when a person has a tough decision to make, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is not asking, what's best for me? What's in it for me? What would I like? They're trying to figure out instead, what would God want me to think? What would God want me to say? What would God want me to do? How would God want me to respond in this situation? 
And you can listen to a person tell their stories about their life. And you can tell if they were the center of their decision-making or if Christ was at the center of their decision-making. Seems that the people in Colossae, when they were hearing the different philosophies of life, they were asking themselves the question, how does that sound for me? What would that do for me? Rather than saying, what does God think about that? What guidance does God's word give? How is God leading me to believe about that? And what is there about the world that I need to separate myself from if I'm really going to be pleasing to the Lord? What would please the Lord in that regard? Without wondering, is that popular? Or is it currently in style? Or would I get ridiculed because of it? How do you make a decision? How do you know the will of God? Well, first off, God's will will never contradict Scripture. What God wants you to do in your life will never contradict the guidance and the truth and the light that he's already given us in his word. That's why it's important for us to know God's word. God, it will be consistent. The Bible says he's the same yesterday and today and forever. We can study how God was in the past and to see how he is in the present and know how he's going to be in the future because he's God and he's given us his word for guidance. So we need to study it. The passage we're on today would be a great one to memorize and to get into your heart. What does the Bible say and what does it mean? You know, there's people who accuse the Bible of being hate speech and they might be right because God hates sin and he's willing to communicate that because he knows that sin separates. It breaks down relationships. It tears people apart. It breaks our communication with God and God loves you. He loves everyone and he hates sin. The second question after what does the Bible say is, what do your trusted spiritual advisors tell you about the decision? Go seek godly counsel. Get good advice. Ask lots of questions. Get input from other people who also know the Lord. And then the third, what are you hearing from God when you pray? Jesus said, if you go into a private place like your closet where you're not trying to impress anybody, nobody can see you and you just are praying to get on your knees and to pray. And to humble yourself before God and to say, God, please guide me that he will. In fact, James 1 says, verse 5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God loves to give you his counsel on uh, the, the decisions that we're facing. We need to take time to ask. So after you've looked at scripture, you've gotten godly counsel, you've uh, prayed about it, at some point it's time to make a decision, take a leap of faith. As we begin moving forward, if God knows our heart, he knows we want to be doing his will. If we're not moving in the right direction, he will guide you. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you are filled with knowing what is God's will. And he is connecting that a fully devoted follower of Jesus is wanting to know God's will so that they can do what God's will is. It's not enough just to collect biblical facts and to know about God's word. God wants to change our thinking and our way we respond and our behavior. Let's say, for instance, you had a boss and the boss comes and says, I want you to do ABC. And after they leave, you say, well, you know, I don't really like ABC, but XYZ are in the same alphabet, so I'm going to do that. And the boss comes back and says, I want you to do ABC. And so when they're gone, you turn around and say, I'm going to do XYZ. At some point, the boss is going to come and say, I think I've been clear what I'm asking, and I'm not receiving that from you, the ABC. Um, you're not listening, and you're not really asking the right question. Which if you're working for a boss, the question is, what does my boss want, and how do I give it to him ASAP? And the boss would say to you, you're saying to yourself, XYZ is so important 
You're thinking you're going to change my mind and I will be pleased because you're, you think your way is better. Let me tell you, it never works like that. Why do we try that with God? Better to spend our time and energy saying, what does God want? What's his will? How do I live that out? Paul is saying, if you take time, God will reveal his will to you. Paul in himself, when he's writing this, is at an active point of waiting every day, not knowing is today the day, is today the day, is today the day, when I will need to stand before the most powerful person in the world to give an account. And until that moment, I want to be ready. I want my heart and my mind in the right place. I want to be following God and be pleasing to the Lord, even if all I do is actively wait till the end of my life. To please God is right living. That's what it says in verse 10. Right living. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. God doesn't impart his will to us just for us to know it or to talk about it. He leads us to a certain course of action. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What will we be doing if we're living a life that's pleasing to the Lord? Paul gives us two ideas here of what results from right living. The first one is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. You can look at your life and see what goodness has developed because of God alive and active in you. In fact, this is the second time that Paul has referred to bearing fruit with your life. To look back and to say, what fruit is my life bearing? If there's no fruit, are you connected to the vine? And how does your garden grow? I've tried growing a garden before. My dad used to kid that my mom and dad had tried a garden, had grown some potatoes, and when it came to harvest time, they went out and they dug up the potatoes and they got some the size of marbles and some the size of peas and then a lot of little ones. So when we were growing our garden, we'd go at harvest time and put it all in a basket. And I looked in the basket and I thought, deplorable. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? I'm sorry. But our own efforts don't measure up much. I've looked around in Harry Atsubo's community garden. There are lots of plots. Some are overgrown with weeds. Some are carefully organized. The best one goes to me because I get to go and harvest somebody else's work. The undiluted Jesus will bear a harvest in your life if you just invite him in. So Paul says your life, if you're walking a manner worthy of the Lord, you're going to bear a spiritual harvest. The second thing it says, you're going to be growing in the knowledge of God. That's why it's important to be in a Sunday school class or in a growth group. Have a plan where you're reading God's word regularly and growing in it and knowing more about God and about his word and falling deeper in love with him and growing closer to him. See, plants need sunshine and they need water to grow. So we need the knowledge of God if we're going to grow in godliness. Somebody showed me a little paper this week called the Babylon Bee. I guess uh, there was an article caught my attention I wanted to share with you of a local father. His name is Trevor. He and his wife were in their mid to late 40s. And it said they were reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter Janie to church every Sunday, they didn't, when they didn't have a pressing sporting commitment, which at least once every three months, she no longer demonstrated the strong quarterly commitment to the faith that they had raised her with now that she's college-aged. 
Trevor, I mean, he was simply stunned at the revelation. He said, I just don't understand it. Almost every single time there was a rained out game or a break between school and club teams, we had Janie in church. It was at least once per quarter. And aside from the one tournament in 2011 when we missed Easter, we never missed another Easter. It was obviously a priority in our family. I just don't get where her spiritual apathy is coming from. Her mother said, I can't tell you how often we prayed the prayer of Jabez on our way to a game. And then she said, you know, the more I think about it, the more this illustrates how the church keeps failing this generation. Lamented Trevor, citing a recently Googled study by Barna or someone. Mickelson's noted further that they have plans to have a chat with their pastor when their younger son, Robert, finishes his soccer season. Now, I wish this wasn't a joke. I don't know if you are aware, but Today in our children's program, the children who are in Sunday school right now, it's the rare exception who has an attendance of higher than 50%. Grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, it's up to us. We're the ones who give them the rides. We need to make the Lord a priority for them. We need to say the Sunday is the Lord's day. Let's be in church. Let's be regular attendance. And, uh, you know, people, uh, many of us in this service think, well, of course, regular attendance is eight, nine or 10 times out of 10. But uh, people who are younger, unfortunately, all across our country think, well, three out of 10 times is, is regular attendance. Well, my wife grew up in a home like that. And she absolutely hated it. In school, she was a serious student and did very well. How do you be a serious student when you're only there one out of every four or five times? There's huge gaps in what's happening, and you can't keep up. We need to make it a priority, and that's why we have four services in the morning and one in the evening, so that if people have something in the morning, they can still get to be with God's people in the evening and come to church at 4.30 and make the Lord a priority on the Lord's day. So I want to encourage you with your attendance and with your family, let's increase our level of commitment on this and to say we want to be Growing in the knowledge of the Lord. So we're going to be among God's people. That's the beauty of the, the seeing the small groups get started and so many people gathering somewhere as they gather around and have God's word as the focus and praying for one another. God gives us the knowledge for right living. We need to be reading it, talking about it, listening to his voice, doing it together. Second thing we say is God's power for joyful endurance. The Christian walk is not a sprint. It's a marathon, and there are tough times, and sometimes we're in great pain, and we need to persevere. Look what he says, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What is necessary for joyfully enduring God's power, God's might, I mean, believers are engaged in a battle in this world. Paul explained this more fully in Ephesians chapter 6, where he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a fight to the death for our souls. We need the power of God inside and in, in by God's might. By our own strength, by ourselves, we do not have a chance. So Paul prays for believers to be strengthened with all power. We need to be empowered by God if we're ever going to be able to stand. 
And that word empowerment translates the same root word which is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, which says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, through him who powers me. We need God's power and God's might. We need endurance and patience with joy. Sometimes we have to choose in advance as believers. I'm going into a situation. I don't know what's going to happen. And I do not have the luxury of getting upset. I do not have the luxury of getting discouraged. I do not have the luxury of giving up or having a tantrum or a hissy fit. We just have to depend on God's power and press on and press on and press on. That's how I feel about our project here at church, don't you? We just have to press on. We believe we're following the Lord in that and we're going to just press on. And we just have to say, Lord Jesus, you power us from the inside. Give us the endurance. Give us the patience. Fill our hearts with joy that the world doesn't understand because it comes from the Lord. As a businessman and his wife who were here at church a few years ago and I sat down to talk to him and I said, tell me about your family. And the English was not their first language, but the man said, my wife prays. So I kind of looked at him like you're looking, saying, what? He says, my wife prays. My wife prays. He said it four or five times, and I'm still looking like a deer in the headlights. And then he said, four hours a day, six days a week, has every, every week of the year for the last 25 years. I looked at her and I said, really? And she said, yeah. I said, what got you started on that? She said, I took my baby to the doctor because he was so sick. And the doctor said, there's no hope. Your baby is going to die. And I began to pray. And I began to pray, God, do a miracle in his life. And in the process, the Lord said to me, I give you 24 hours a day. You sleep for eight of them. That gives you 16. 16 hours a day. You can't give four of them to me in prayer? She said, I began to pray four hours a day as a discipline. I looked at the man and he said, I said, so you go to church? He goes, "Uh uh-huh. He said, I go to church because I was being nice because she asked me to go to church. I'm not a Christian. She's a Christian. So I go to church with her and and I sit in church and I hear the sermon every week and then I watch her and I watch her for a year and then two and then five. I'm attending every week with her, but it's not, it's not touching my heart. And then 10 and then 20. He said, after 20 years of watching her day in and day out, pray and pray and pray and go to church and pray I realize every time I've asked her for advice, every time she's given me insight of what we should do in our business or our family, she's been right. You can't be right every time for 20 years without God telling you the answer. He said, so I give up. I become a Christian. (laughs) Now, I know you'll ask, the baby lived. He's still alive today. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This series from here at Colossians is going to end right before Thanksgiving. But Paul doesn't wait. It's all the way through this book. Thanksgiving, having a thankful heart, saying more thank you, thank you, thank yous to God for what he's done. This is a guy who's sitting in prison, who's been beat up more times than he can count, who has nothing, and he's able to say thank you because his heart is filled with joy because he's got an endurance and he knows he's going to see the Savior someday. And his Savior is the undiluted Jesus. Is exactly what he needs. He's what we need too. Look what God has done. He also said he's included us in the inheritance. You share in the inheritance with all the saints. 
So if we review this, God's given us the knowledge for right living. We need to read his word and listen to his voice. God powers our life with his undiluted joy for living a life that endures to the end. And then you have God's guarantee for answered prayer. Verse 13 and 14, look, he said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How do we know our prayers will be answered? Paul says right here, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. God has proved to us by sending Jesus in this world to die in our place, to have his life poured out for yours and for mine, that he cares about us and he includes us in his family inheritance with his son. He's proved to us that we are in his will, that we share the inheritance with all the saints. He's delivered us out of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of his son. We live in the light. Darkness in scripture is a symbolic of ignorance, falsehood, and sin. And Paul is is suggesting all of those falsehoods that are trying to creep their way into church, that come into the church in Colossae, with the people who are coming to Christ, who aren't quite ready to just forsake what the world is about and hang on to the undiluted Jesus. They want to mix him with something else. And it doesn't work. Didn't then, and it won't now. And he's drawing this sharp distinction. Live in the light of Christ. Live for Jesus Christ only because we've been redeemed. Jesus has forgiven all our sin. His kingdom is not a geography. You can't find it on the map. It's not a place. It's a way of thinking that we are under the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are fully devoted to following Jesus. When I used to go up to Travis Air Force Base near Sacramento, I developed a relationship with an Indian taxi driver. He had a master's degree. He had lost an arm as a child. He wasn't able to get a job in America, so he was driving taxi. So I would call him every time. He was from India, and he was a Sikh. And so we would share snacks and conversation about Jesus. And I would take him books. And I don't know yet if he's ever come to the Lord, but he certainly heard it over and over and over and was a pleasant conversationalist every time. One time I called him and he said, be right there. I get there and I jump in the taxi and it's a different driver. And the man said, I told me his name. I don't remember what it was. And he said, I said, where's my regular driver? And he said, well, he couldn't come. So he sent me. I said, well, are you from India? And he said, yes. I said, are you Muslim? He said, or are you a Sikh? He said, no, I'm Muslim. So we're riding along and I'm sharing snacks with them and we're, we're talking about families and diet and those kinds of things and about our kids. And then out of the blue, he says, oh, I re- realize now, okay, relax. I'm not with a terrorist. I'm with a taxi driver. Okay. He goes, oh, I sure wish we had Sharia law here in America. I go, huh? I go, Why? I'm thinking, are you nuts? Look at the places in the world where they have Sharia law. They're not better off than we are. But I don't want to get tossed out on the side of the freeway either, you know, and have to walk to the airport. So I said, why? He says, because we actually live by Sharia law here already. And it's just wonderful. It would be so great if everybody here just got to live under Sharia law. And I'm thinking, what could be worse? Because we live under a different system. And they're not the same, and they're not complementary, and you can't have both, and you have to choose. And now here we are, believers, we belong to Jesus Christ, and we are citizens of his kingdom. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been transferred from the kingdom of death and darkness into light and love. There's no comparison. 
There's no comparison. There's no turning back. And you can't have both. And Jesus gives us forgiveness. And he gives us confidence. And we love and we serve the undiluted Jesus. And even when we are being persecuted and we need to endure, he fills our heart with joy. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all the rest. Just give me Jesus. See, the gospel guarantees God's continuous work to help us live rightly and endure joyfully. There was no reason sitting in jail, having lost everything, having been beaten up so many times that Paul should have been filled with joy other than the undiluted Jesus in his heart and in his life. So we need to ask God to deepen our knowledge of God's will so that we will live a life worthy of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. See, sometimes we can feel overwhelmed, and maybe when we come to church, it's a good place to have our batteries recharged, but, you know, we, we hear the wisdom of the world, which a lot of it's lies, and the, the strength of the world, the influence of the world on each of us, and we live in the world. We're to be not of the world. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we're going to make it. But as sure as your salvation, as sure as the redemption that you have in Jesus Christ, God will continue to do his work in your heart if you continue saying, yes, Lord Jesus. Live in in me, live in me, live through me. God will give you the knowledge that you need. He will give you the power that you need to help you endure by God's strength and by God's power. Sometimes we feel like we're failing, we're confused, and we're wondering if, is God really who he says? Can he really keep me from sin? Can he really uh, keep me from failing? God, prove yourself to me. And we just need to give our heart to the Lord, just say, Lord, I need to trust in you. In my own strength, I don't have a chance. But to pray the prayer of saying, Lord Jesus, I apologize for my sin. And once again, I turn to you. Fill my heart with yourself. Help me to trust you and to know your enduring power and your joy. Some of you here might never have asked Jesus into your heart before. Then you don't have a chance against the strength and the wisdom of the world. Even though it's founded on sand and it's a lot of it's based on lies, you'll have no foundation to stand on because the only sure foundation is Jesus Christ. So allow him to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. and Let him forgive your sin. Enter his kingdom and recognize him as king of kings and lord of lords. See, he provides us opportunities to point other people to Jesus, to live for him. Paul said, from this day we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's our undiluted Jesus. He's all we need. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, I pray that you will strengthen and empower us based on your word here this morning as we have heard your word as we've read it together as we take it into our hearts as we put you first thank you that we can trust you and obey you and be filled with your joy may our hearts overflow with thanksgiving for who you are and what you have done may we live in this world as confident humble joyful people 
who are sharing the good news of Jesus because you are awesome. You are all we need. Amen.